from the American College of Cardiology, this is Dr. Deepak Bhatt, Senior Associate Editor for ACC.org. I'm filling in this week for Dr. Kim Eagle, I think he's away fishing, on Eagle's Eye View, your weekly cardiovascular update from ACC.org. This week I'm going to review four different articles, all of which are really interesting. In fact, there's a lot of good stuff this week in general. Let me first start off with a topic that your patients probably have seen and are wondering about. It's an article in Circulation about long-term consumption of sugar-sweetened or artificially sweetened beverages and what the risk is of different things like mortality. And it turns out that sugar-sweetened beverages were associated with mortality, especially cardiovascular-related mortality. There was a dose-response relationship. More was worse. So that is always in any type of study reassuring that a relationship might in fact be real and might be causal. Always difficult to say in these sorts of associative studies, but there might be something to that. And there was also in patients who are in the highest intake levels for artificially sweetened beverages in association with total and cardiovascular mortality as well. The authors were a little less firm about that association, but still, I think overall, further evidence that probably best to cut down on sugar-sweetened beverages and even with the artificially sweetened beverages probably want to limit intake of those. Really the only safe thing it seems these days is drinking water. Let me move on now to a scientific statement from the American Heart Association on myocardial infarction in the absence of obstructive coronary artery disease. Minoka is what many people are calling it these days. That term's really caught on. And this isn't such an uncommon situation, really. Around 5 to 6% of patients with an acute myocardial infarction appear to have minoca if you take them to an angiogram. This scientific statement provides a lot of useful information. There's a nice algorithm as well about how to approach minoca. And there's a long list of potential causes things like plaque disruption or plaque erosion, coronary emboli or coronary thrombus, SCAD, that is spontaneous coronary artery dissection, that's being increasingly recognized, coronary artery spasm, it's another potential cause of minoca, microvascular disease, that as well. So these are some of the different causes of minoca, and it sure seems like we're seeing more of this in the catheterization laboratory. So, worthwhile taking a close look at this document. A publication in the European Heart Journal that also caught my eye, and I think it's worth everyone taking a look at, is an article on pregnancy outcomes in women with cardiovascular disease. This is from the ESC, the European Society of Cardiology Registry of Pregnancy and Cardiac Disease, called ROPAC. I really got to commend the authors in the ESC for looking into this issue. This has been an area where it's been tough to get good data. And overall, lots of important messages. They enrolled over 5,000 pregnancies. It was mostly women with congenital heart disease, but a fair percentage with valvular heart disease as well. It turned out that mortality was highest in those with pulmonary arterial hypertension. Heart failure and arrhythmias were complications that were noted. Delivery ended up being by cesarean section 44% of the time, so the rest of the time was vaginal deliveries. 
And in terms of numbers, obstetric complications occurred in 17%, fetal complications in 21%. And over the time period of study from about 2007 to 2018, the number of high-risk pregnancies increased from 0.7% to 10.9%. So that's why I think a lot of us, even if you're not focused on high-risk obstetrics or caring for women that have complex heart disease and are pregnant, still probably you're going to come across this as the number of women with heart disease becoming pregnant increases. 10.9% is a non-trivial percentage, I think. Interestingly, though, even with this increase in the number of high-risk pregnancies among this cohort, again, this is a cohort of women with heart disease, the complication rates actually fell from 13.2% to 9.3% between 2010 and 2017. So I think that's overall a good sign, though it's still a pretty high complication rate at 9.3%, so more work to be done in this area for sure. The final article I'll mention is one from the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, and to be precise, it's Jack Intervention, and it's the RESET trial. The RESET trial had randomized patients to receive either a first-generation serolimus-eluting stent or a second-generation everolimus-eluting stent. The results have been previously published, but what is seen here is the seven-year data. So I think that's terrific to have some long-term data. There are over 2,000 patients, and complete seven-year follow-up was achieved in 91.5% of patients who were eligible for the seven-year follow-up, so not bad. In fact, I should say, really good for seven-year follow-up. The primary efficacy endpoint of target lesion revascularization wasn't statistically significantly different between the everolimus and serolimus eluting stents. A hazard ratio of 0.87, rates of 10.2 versus 11.7%, pretty low rates, I might mention, for target lesion revascularization over the course of seven years. So not a significant difference there for the primary endpoint, but I think, really, it's a positive message here in another endorsement of the second-generation drug-eluting stents versus the first-generation drug-eluting stents. Here, for example, if one looks at the primary safety endpoint of death, or MI, that was lower with the everolimus eluting stent than the serolimus eluting stent, a hazard ratio of 0.85 with a p-value of 0.06. So you can quibble and say, oh, 0.06 isn't statistically significant, but I'd say close enough in this case, especially when viewed with the totality of data. It really does show that second-generation DS are more effective and safer. Stent thrombosis, or at least definite stent thrombosis, rates were quite low, not statistically significantly different, 0.9 and 1% for everolimus versus serolimus. But that overall rate, I think, is remarkable, just in terms of how low it is. And for the composite secondary endpoint of target lesion failure, those rates were 13.3 versus 18.1%. It's a hazard ratio of 0.72 in favor of the everolimus eluting stent, a p-value of 0.001. So just to really buttress the point that I was making, again, one can argue about p-values and primary and secondary endpoints. I think this is another resounding success for the second-generation drug eluting stent. And that's probably true as a class effect. This was specifically the everolimus eluting stent versus the serolimus eluting stent. But probably we can generalize to the currently available second-generation drug eluting stents, at least the ones in the U.S. market. 
versus the first-generation drug-looting stents that no one's using anymore anyway. But still, good to know that this movement from first to second-generation DS really is an advance in terms of efficacy, and I would say in terms of safety as well. So, lots of other interesting articles that we cover on acc.org this week. This is just a quick selection. Thanks very much for listening to this week's Eagle's Eye View, your weekly cardiovascular update from acc.org. All the topics I discussed today can be found on the American College of Cardiology's website, so please do tune in. And please find us there or wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great week.